Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. Dan and Warwick, what's up, Dan? Uh, hey, Mike. Uh, I just got a, uh, a question about the Giants. Uh, in your years of experience, have you ever seen uh, you know this, how the San Francisco Giants were once the New York Giants? Has, has there ever been either a franchise-to-franchise franchise or maybe even player-to-player player get-together when San Francisco comes to New York? Like, do they ever... Say hi, maybe, uh, I don't know, go out to dinner or something. Uh, I don't know. What, is, what are you talking about? Is there ever any interaction when the San Francisco Giants come to New York or vice versa? The San Francisco like, Giants it, come to New York and do what? Have a game. Uh, you know, play they, with ever, the, like, they play against the Mets. And what do you want to happen now? Did the, did the New York Giants ever reach out to them, either the players or the franchises? The football you know, they, Giants? Yeah, the football Giants. Well, what is the connection between the San Francisco Giants and the football Giants? Well, they used to be in New York, and they got the same name. But they have they have nothing to do with each other, though. There's no connection. They have different ownership. There's no connection between the two teams. I mean, there's no connection in any way between the two teams. They have no relationship. Do you think because they're Giants, they're like brothers or something? That might be the weirdest question I got in a long time. I mean, that might, and and I think that's an honest question. That might be the strangest question I got in a really long time. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they have the giant picnic. Uh, they hold it over in in Totowa, I think it is, uh, and then they have the the giant relay race and the giant raffle, and then they all get together for the giant breakfast the next morning, and then they go their separate ways. It is true. It's a it's a July weekend. Every year when it happens. Yeah, and then the Rangers in Texas and the New York Rangers have the same thing. They meet usually in Abilene and have that in August every year. Lundquist is, is particularly close to you, Darvish. They, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a kinship there between the two of them. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, welcome, and what's going on, everybody? Your pal, Tim Hanlon, reporting for duty. It's Good Seats, still available. The curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thanks for finding us. We appreciate it. We know how many choices you have out there. And hopefully uh, you will be rewarded. And, and a little tip off, <laughs> hopefully you got a little chuckle, at least out of that uh, out of that clip, because we're going to be talking about the uh, New York baseball giants. Uh, we've talked about uh, that team, that incarnation uh, on a number of different occasions. Uh, and we're going to be uh, specifically talking about sort of the uh, 1920s, 1930s sort of version when they really they were really the the kings of baseball at that time, it was even before Yankee Stadium. Uh, was even built. And we'll get into that story uh, with our guest this week, uh, Rob Garrett, who is the uh, author of this great uh, new book about the uh, just the life and times of Charles Stoneham, who was uh, the original Stoneham in the ownership group 
of the New York Giants, buying the team in 1919, uh, and then willing it literally and figuratively to his son, Horace, uh, upon his passing in 1936. And Horace, of course, uh, ran uh, the franchise after uh, having uh, been uh, interned, shall we say, very seriously from by his father, including the polo grounds and all that. And, and Horace was the uh, the one, of course, that uh, broke some of uh, New York baseball fans' hearts uh, when uh, he took the uh, Giants to the West Coast in San Francisco, along, of course, with the uh, the Dodgers going to Los Angeles, but uh, that clip kind of <laughs> sets it up somewhat humorously. Uh, I just any excuse to kind of <laughs> find a uh, you know a Mike Francesa clip uh, for those outside the New York City area. You don't know who Mike Francesa is. Uh, he has been uh, uh, well known. He's the, known as the sports pope, um, serio comically um, in New York, uh, and has been. Uh, remembered mostly, of course, as uh, one half of the uh, the dynamic uh, breakthrough uh, pioneering, I guess, duo uh, in sports talk radio of uh, the original Mike and the Mad Dog show, Mike uh, Francesa and Chris Mad Dog Russo, who you can hear on Sirius XM on, I think it's Mad Dog Radio. And he's also a, a frequent guest um, at Stevie A. Smith's uh, various shows on ESPN as well. But uh, Mike uh, has been soldiering on uh, on his own since uh, that very famous uh, breakup of those two years back. Uh, there's an even an ESPN a 30 for 30 documentary from our uh, our old pal Dan Forer, uh, who we talked about the uh, Spirits of St. Louis uh, ABA basketball team. He uh, actually was the producer of that Mike and the Mad Dog documentary. But again, I digress. Uh, but that clip is uh, indicative of. Uh, shall we say how easily duped Mike can be, has been, I think he's podcasting now. Um, welcome to the club, Mike, uh, in, uh, dealing with callers, right? Uh, the, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that truly was Dan in Waldwick. I put that in quotes, uh, but that clip was from t- spring of 2015, uh, back when Mike was simulcasting his radio show on WFAN in New York. Uh, on the uh, Fox Sports property, I think it was Fox Sports Two at the time, uh, and the, and I, that clip comes to us from uh, a a wonderful follow on Twitter. Uh, the uh, person's name is not much known about this person. It's called Fan House, and the uh, the handle on Twitter is back after a t excuse me a f t a this back after this at back after this and. Um, <laughs> If you want uh, uh, the uh, some of the best uh, and humorous uh, head scratching and just out out and out laugh out loud um, uh, foibles of Mike Francesa on his own uh, doing the uh, sports talk thing in New York, uh, give uh, back after this fan house a follow. It's it's a hoot. But uh, the topic, as brought up by quote unquote Dan in Waldwick, is about the Giants, the baseball version. Not quite sure if they're uh, picnicking with the New York football giants these days when the San Francisco version of baseball's team comes into play. But um, we can always hope uh, that that's the case and everybody's getting along. Uh, But Rob Garrett is here and through no fault of his own, that's how we're starting this show. It's a wonderful chat. um, And this is pretty interesting stuff because a lot of the – conversation. We talk certainly about the Giants and the, the various uh, World Series championships that they win, but that story during this time, but that story of uh, Yankee Stadium not being built, actually, uh, we, we, the 
Yankee Stadium, the original one, and obviously the ones that have uh, followed since, uh, would not have existed had it not been for the stubbornness and uh, gamesmanship, shall we say, uh, in the boardroom uh, and sort of the machinations of uh, of baseball's ownerships uh, at that time that uh, Charles Stoneham was involved in. And um, you have to remember back in 1919 and 1920 or so when uh, Charles Stoneham uh, bought this team, the Yankees were tenants of the Polo Grounds owned by the New York Giants. So uh, stay tuned for finding out a little bit of that, that story. It's fairly well known in, in New York baseball history circles, but it's, it's relatively new to me. But there's also lots of other very interesting things about this guy, Charles Stoneham. I mean, he's, you know, uh, he had various business ventures. Uh, you could say they bordered on the illegal or illicit, uh, especially with some of the folks that he hung around with, including the uh, notorious organized crime boss, Arnold Rothstein, um, himself known arguably for being part of or not perhaps the engineer of fixing the 1919 World Series, uh, major gambling operations uh, that Stoneham was involved with, uh, both uh, with Rothstein and, and separately, um, obviously owning the Giants, but also uh, lesser known and probably worth exploring in future programs. Uh, Stoneham, Charles Stoneham was perhaps one of the earliest pioneers in trying to professionalize uh, the American football game. Uh, even before the NFL kind of got started back in 1919, he was uh, making some stuff happen. Uh, interesting how he did not sort of get absorbed into uh, the original club, if you will, of the NFL owners back in the day. I'm, I, tis not uh, this episode to kind of get into that, but I'm fascinated by it. And equally so, uh, you'll uh, be interested to know that Charles Stoneham uh, has a very uh, important part uh, in – the early history of professional soccer in this country, uh, the original, the very original American Soccer League um, at the time, back in the late uh, teens, early uh, 1920s, um, the case could have been made that the American Soccer League uh, was the second most pro uh, popular professional league behind Major League Baseball. Um, lots of uh, big crowds, especially in the Northeast, a lot of European uh, players coming over either to naturalize uh, immigration wise or uh, simply just play here. Uh, and uh, as we've talked about ad nauseum, uh, th those teams often sharing ownership with baseball owners and later even football team owners and stadium owners. Um, but, uh, yes, Charles Stoneham was part of that process. He owned the team called the, uh, New York nationals, uh, which I think were also, I think he wanted to also call them, um, well, I, we'll sort of touch on it, but, um, it, it's just, it's just fascinating how in essence, uh, this was uh, a very interesting cat, uh, that uh, arguably was maybe one of the original, I don't know, sports moguls. Uh, if not for perhaps, let's say, uh, a rally, uh, relatively curious and often um, borderline, if not fully illicit, uh, set of uh, activities uh, that uh, perhaps uh, brought a cloud or two, shall we say, to uh, to his legacy. But we're going to talk about the New York Giants, pre predominantly his ownership thereof. And again, the book 
uh, that you should get. And let's uh, let's tout it now, shall we? Uh, it is called Jazz Age Giant, Charles A. Stoneham and New York City Baseball in the Roaring Twenties. Uh, it's a very compelling read. Uh, it's not a hugely long read, but it's uh, it's quite eyebrow raising. And uh, if you're uh, a student of American history in the 1920s and the uh, the Roaring Twenties and the lead up into the Great Depression and, and maybe the first years of that, uh, you will uh, be entranced by this story. Uh, if you're just interested in the various rogue characters that existed around that time, whether they be in sports or not, uh, prohibition and and gambling and the mafia and all that kind of stuff. Um, this story, uh, the history of Charles A. Stoneham, uh, overlaps a whole bunch of those. Uh, and uh, you will find uh, that um, that interest satiated by this book. Again, Jazz Age, Jazz Age giant, he says, Charles A. Stoneham and the New York City baseball and New York City baseball <laughs> in the roaring 20s. Uh, it uh, is published by the University of Nebraska uh, Press, our friends there. Uh, it just came out last week as we record this. And of course, if uh, you, it's available everywhere you get books, but if you'd like to buy it and give us uh, a couple of referral shekels of love by doing so, by all means, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 299 with Rob Garrett, and you'll find a convenient link there, and you would uh, be doing us a favor and uh, putting a couple of coins in our uh, tip jar, and we'd appreciate that very much. Okay, so let's not waste any more time, me babbling along and talking about Mike Francesa and <laughs> New York Giants picnics and all that, and let's get to a, a, a tremendously uh, interesting and fun conversation. Here's my chat with uh, with Rob Garrett as we talk about the original ownership of the Stoneham family, in this case, Charles A. Stoneham, uh, and the 1920s in New York Giants Major League Baseball. Please, as always, enjoy. So I'm fascinated by uh, this era of one of those teams that we like to obsess about, that being the New York Baseball Giants. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously yeah. has been in San Francisco now pushing on 80 years already, which is hard to believe. Um, but the, uh, you know, I, there's a whole generation or two or three, maybe even of, of baseball fans who don't even recognize that the San Francisco Giants emanated from New York City and, uh, and, and, and yeah. a long history in New York City, even before they moved to San Francisco. Right. Absolutely. The, the first book, my, the, my previous book is called Home Team. And it's about the move in 1957 when the, the Giants came west with Horace Stoneham. And when I get into that research, it, uh, the Giants were very cooperative. I had I interviewed so many people, players, managers, and so on, and former owners, among them Bob Lurie, who told, told, me, told me a lot about Horace Stoneham. And then when I got into the Horace Stoneham story, well, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. I don't know. because No, let's start there. It's very, very helpful and very important because we've had a previous conversation or two about, about the, the Horace era, shall we say. But like, go yeah. ahead. Go for it. Well, it, it, I, as I, I, I thought I was going to write a biography of Horace Stoneham because uh, when I was in a former life, I'm a recovering Irish lit professor. And so I, I decided to, you know, once I retired, I didn't didn't need to publish articles anymore and on Irish lit. I wrote a lot of books on Irish lit. I decided I'd go into this baseball history because I grew up in San Francisco and uh, I saw the Giants come West when I was a kid. So I, I got interested in that. 
and I discovered most of the literature was on the Dodgers and on Walter O'Malley. So I began digging about, well, what about the Giants? They came too. And I thought I would write a book on Horace Stoneham, why he brought the team, who, who was he anyway, and all this. And then as I got into the problem of the move, I realized I would rather talk about a team, a biography of a team, if you will, and its relationship to San Francisco and the city and how for almost um, 40 years, how turbulent that history was. Once the euphoria wore off about the move itself and the great baseball in the early 60s, the Giants ran into all kinds of difficulties, as you well know. Uh, and they almost left town not once but twice. So I got more interested in the relationship of the team and the community and the city. And that's how home team sort of evolved. But I didn't leave behind the, the Stonems themselves. But the one I was very interested in was Horace's father, Charles, who bought the team in 1919. And that's where I began work on Jazz Age Giant. Yeah, it's interesting that you um, and I grew up in the New York area and and have vague memories of my uh, my grandparents, my, especially my grandfathers. Uh, both of them were largely Yankee fans uh, and actually professionally uh, crossed into that dynamic. My uh, paternal grandfather uh, worked for uh, uh, baseball card uh, uh, printing entities, tops and that kind of stuff. And the Yankees uh, were one of his counts. Uh, and my maternal grandfather was in the uh, liquor wholesale distribu distribution business and mm -hmm. would uh, it was uh, Ballantine Ale was one of his biggest clients. And that was for many oh, yeah. years, a big, big yep. Yankee sponsor. Right. So yep. um, but there was always these giants sort of sort of floating around. They were always they, they were always acknowledged uh, in my my family. Um, right. But but then they weren't right. And, and, you know, knowledge of this thing called the polo grounds. And, and then it wasn't. And um, mm -hmm. hazy memories and stuff. But uh, I think it's intriguing that you're pulling on that thread, despite you having written a book already. I think it's actually pretty telling in that. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I don't know what the official uh, account is, but uh, I think there are maybe two, three, four X amount of books and uh, and and offerings and, and, and videos and movies, uh, documentaries devoted to the, the Dodgers part of the story and, and not the Giants. Uh, and I, I, it's pretty interesting to see that there really isn't as much. And I wonder why that is by comparison. Well, I, I think I think some of it has to do with the personalities of the owners in the 50s. Walter O'Malley was an outgoing guy. He was an attorney. He was he was trained as a speaker. Horace Stoneham dropped out of Fordham, he says, after four days or five days. And he was just a businessman. And he was in the shadow of his father most of his life. And uh was one of the youngest owners in 36 when when the father died when charles died suddenly this 32 year old is running the team but he was very happy to let o'malley you know lead the way uh in in the 50s to get new ballparks and so on but he had his own plan and he quietly went around thinking uh, what he was going to do and one of the things he knew is he's going to have to leave the polo grounds uh, to bring the, that that was the oldest ballpark in the major leagues and to bring it up to fan comfort and and, and fan friendly uh, environments, he would have to do a lot of refurbishing. Plus, the neighborhood itself was changing. There was public housing going in. There was no ability to park automobiles. And Horace Stoneham felt that pre post-World War II America was going to be dominated by the car. The automobile he was quite right about that. And he, he just realized that where he was was not going to work. 
Uh, now, O'Malley had his own way of going about things, and he confronted Robert Moses, who was the, the, the so-called construction czar, the planning czar of New York City, and they locked, locked horns often, and it was often in the press. So Stoneham was in the background of a lot of this. So I think some of the reason for the, the Dodgers story being the more visible, if you will, was the personalities of the owners. Uh, nonetheless, Stoneham decided bef before O'Malley that he was going to leave New York City, and he was quite upfront about it in the congressional hearings in the summer of 1957, uh, admitting to the uh, committee that, yes, the Giants were, were planning, if San Francisco makes us an offer that's suitable, we will probably accept, and so on. So uh, the, the, stand, the, the, the sports writers in the New York City area more or less focused on O'Malley as sort of a villain that he not only took the Dodgers out of Brooklyn and the New York area, but he also hoodwinked Horace to come along with him uh, and, and, and go west where they could continue the rivalry and, and rake in all this wonderful money that they're going to make. So I think these are sort of the myths behind the idea that, oh, did the Giants actually leave too? You know, that sort of story. And uh, yes, they did. In fact, Stoneham was planning to go to Minneapolis, where he owned the rights to the city because of the his AAA franchise, the Minneapolis Millers. And he had done some serious negotiation with the city of Minneapolis and was planning to leave, as he told uh, O'Malley in, in a conf confidential conversation in March of 1957 that he was going to Minneapolis. Yeah, when he was going, when he was going to Minneapolis was another thing because Horace was, you know, he had made up his mind to move, but he said, "I don't have to really go yet," you know, that kind of thing. Well, once O'Malley heard that, and he had his own eyes set on L.A., he thought, "Well, if Stoneham's leaving, maybe I can convince him to go a little farther west." And he got the mayor of San Francisco, that is to say, O'Malley got the mayor of San Francisco. They were looking for a team uh, at, at the time. The city of San Francisco was courting Major League Baseball. So O'Malley put, you might think, put things in motion and had had the mayor of San Francisco reach out to Stoneham. And that's kind of how all the momentum's shifted from Minneapolis to San Francisco. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting. I'm going to really kind of try to thread a needle here because it, uh, it, it's almost um, diametrically opposed or different from when his dad owned the team um, in that the Giants were um, uh, the more dominant franchise, I guess, or the more influential or uh, versus the uh, the crosstown, well, maybe not even crosstown, right? We'll talk about that part of the story, the Yankees, right? Um, well, that's right. Uh, I mean, in fact, the point you're making is, is very important that the New York Giants were the storied franchise in all of baseball, really. Certainly in the National League, there were probably um, a, a number of other clubs in the American League. Connie Mack's teams were often very good. Philadelphia, but it was for New York baseball. The the Yankees were a, an upstart. They were they were really uh, until the 1920s when Babe Ruth comes in and and they get the new ballpark. The Giants were the team. They were certainly Manhattan's team. The Brooklyn, uh, the, the Dodgers weren't even called the Dodgers in those days. They were called the Robins. Uh, they were a, a third, you know, a, a rival of, of the Giants, but they were really. Um, in the shadow of the Giants. So when Stoneham bought, bought, Charles Stoneham bought the team in 1919, he was buying the New York franchise. 
John McGraw was the manager and he had been the manager for almost 20 years at that stage, was probably the most well-known personality, certainly in New York baseball, but perhaps even in the National League, maybe even in the country. McGraw's giants are featured, you know, in all kinds of newspapers. Even even Ernest Hemingway writes some short stories in which he, he talks about McGraw's giants. So they were definitely a headline ball club. All right. Well, let's let's back up then into who this Charles Stoneham guy was, because um, uh, I think it's important to the story as to sort of, uh, you know, he's sort of the classic of this era, big boy with his toys. Um, I, I guess the, the the question in there is, how did he become a big boy, so to speak, uh, to to merit a seat at that table and and have the dough and the chutzpah to actually, you know, buy this then and, and uh, certainly during his ownership storied franchise? He was a a, a, a character, a, a, an amazing, an amazing fellow. Uh, really, uh, he made his his money in in the, um, the stock market. We would say loosely uh, framed, but a, but a certain kind of of uh, uh, investment business. He he was in what was called the consolidated exchange or the curb market, which was a a part of Wall Street that featured riskier uh, investments open longer hours, were able to take clients that weren't more like blue collar investors that could go in on lower margins, didn't have to buy a lot of, you know, they, and, and, and this, this was really a form of risky um, enterprise. And Stoneham, even as a young man, was interested in gambling. He had a very quick head for mathematics and was, would took to the mathematical side of stock uh, brokerage very quickly and rose almost, you'd have to say it was a meteoric rise in the business. He started out as a broad, a board boy, which is someone who just goes in and writes down on all, all keeps track of the stocks at, at, a, at a, the age of 17. And um, in 10 or 12 years, he uh, opens his own brokerage business. And by 1913, he has 13 Charles A. Stone and brokerage houses all through the Northeast. Uh, he he was a, a very sharp individual and someone who was capable of taking risk. And he always put profit over his customers' well-being, if you will. Um, almost on it, it, the writers of of the time say it was bordering on on, on illegality. <laughs> um, you you would go in and open a, a, an account with with one of this firm these kinds of firms. They were called bucket shops. He was not the only one in the bucket shop business, but they would often you'd open an account, you'd buy something. Let's just say we'll pull a stock, uh, U.S. Steel, and uh, Stoneham would fill out a form for you or, or his his minions, really the people who worked for him, and then they would hold onto it and put it in the bucket, so to speak, and watch for the market to move and then they would decide either to buy or sell whatever but it was always to the advantage of the brokerage house and uh, you had to um, make good of course if the customers came in but stoneham's timing was often extremely good and he worked very well in um, falling markets because he could then uh, um, sell he sold the stock at a certain sold in inverted commas because he didn't really buy anything yet watch the market in, in this case, go down, and then he would buy it at the bottom, and then pocket the difference. So he he um, he was a gambler himself, and by the time uh, the war ended in 1918, 
he was well positioned financially uh, to break out into another kind of business. He had already started uh, buying racehorses and racing in all kinds of uh, New York arenas. He he um, also would go winter out in Havana, Cuba, and played the horses there. Had his own stables, and his horses were were competing very well. So he was starting to become a sportsman. By 1917, the war breaks out. Uh, he uh, then has an inkling to get into. A, leave the stock brokerage business and really become a full-time sportsman. And at this time, the giants are for sale. Uh, it's a, it's a strange story, but the man who, a man called Hempstead, who was overlooking the national, um, exhibition company, this is the umbrella organization of the giants. Um, he, because of the war and the way that baseball really had a, a, a terrible drop in attendance, and owners were complaining, they shortened the season. Then there was a work and fight order. Many of the American League and National League players, almost over 230 of them left the game to go in the service. So the quality of the game dropped. People started becoming more patriotic. The, the attendance fell way off. And Hempstead reasoned at this time that baseball was not a good investment for the people he was overseeing. The the people who owned the club, and he wanted to get out of baseball. So he decided at the end of 1918, at the end of the season, that he would look for a buyer. And he put McGraw more or less in charge of this. McGraw was the manager. And McGraw well, he was out. he was more than just the manager. He was like he was like a fixture, right? He was like kind of well, a- he was he was a face of the franchise. I mean, he didn't own the team. But he he was he was hired by the owners, but but he was the manager in the sense yeah, that like synonymous with it. Out, but he ran the club. He 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 made all the decisions about you know player personnel and so on. But one of the things he wanted desperately at this stage of his life, and we're talking now about 1918, McGraw is uh, you know in his uh, 40s anyway. He wanted to be part owner of of the New York Giants because he'd been with them for almost 20 years at this stage. And he was looking for somebody that might have an interest in buying the team, but also would allow him in as a minor partner, just as a, and he found that man in Charles Stoneham. Uh, now it's a long story. I go into this in the book in great detail because there are all kinds of rumors of how this all came about, but it was um, uh, a man called Loft uh, and, and, and George Cohen, uh, the, the music man from Broadway, these were the two people that were more or less in the inside rail to buy the Giants. And all the newspapers were following their stories. And then lo and behold, they opened the, the newspapers on the 15th of January, 1919, to discover that there was a man called Charles Stoneham. No one ever knew of him, that he had bought the Giants and gave minor partnerships to uh, a, a, a Tammany Hall magistrate judge called Frank McQuaid and John McGraw. But Everybody was shocked. It was, it was, Stoneham came out of nowhere and no one knew who he was. Uh, and there he was, the, the owner of the most storied franchise, certainly in New York and, and probably the National League. Well, you mentioned the gambling and, and I think enter in this other character. Uh, do you want to talk about this Arnold Rothstein guy? Because, um, <laughs> Yeah, well, this is part of the color of this period. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the jazz age, when I when I was uh, discovering Charles Stoneham, I realized that 
not only did, was the source of his wealth mysterious, but he 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 converted with so many uh, characters. Tammany Hall. He he came from Irish American background, so Tammany Hall was run by Irish Americans. So he had a, um, a, a, an in, and he, he he got to meet a number of the players, like Charles Murphy, who ran the city. And the other side of, of, of New York life that he, because he was a gambler, he got involved in uh, Arnold Rothstein, who was who was at the time the gambling impresario of New York City. This would be about 1910, 1911. And Charles Stoneham joined uh, Rothstein's famous floating crap game, uh, which, which would meet periodically, but all the high rollers would be there. And so Stoneham met all the, uh, Sinclair, the oil man, he met, he met uh, uh, Zigfield, the Broadway fellow. He, he, he met Swope, the, the, um, the great journalist. All these guys were serious gamblers and they would, would meet at various hotels. That's why it's called the floating crap game. By the way, that, that concept, Rothstein, Rothstein's concept of the floating crap comes out in the Guys and Dolls. Uh, musical and and Rothstein himself was the basis for the character Nathan Detroit. He also appears in the in the Great Gatsby, a book that I was so moved by that I tried to work into my own story of Charles Stoneham because I think the connections between Gatsby and Stoneham are so are, are so redolent that uh, it really interests me. But Rothstein was a, a, an acquaintance of, of Stoneham's and was partners with him. Many of, of Rothstein's biographers suggest that he even brokeraged the sale of the Giants. He provided insurance for Stoneham and the Polo Grounds. They were certainly, well, certainly, I have to put that in inverted commas as well. There are rumors that they were partners in the bootlegging business in the 20s once Prohibition came in. So he and, he and Rothstein are quite connected. And uh, he, Rothstein was a guest in the, in the, in the Giants owner's box at games uh, in the polo grounds. So these, these guys knew each other very well. Uh, and um, it, it's a facet of, of Stoneham's personality that he was able to, to uh, uh, you know, be acquainted with people like Al Smith, who ran for president in 1928. Uh, he was a Tammany Hall guy. And also under you know, sort of the, the underworld characters like uh, Rothstein. So it's a fascinating connection here. And, and Rothstein was the fellow who got him into the, uh, got Charles Stoneham interested in horse racing. And they both had different stables that they ran their colors against one another in many of the races. Now, of course, uh, your, your listeners would know that Rothstein is the fellow that whenever you talk about the 1919 World Series, Rothstein is always his name is always the one who comes up and, and, and that he, he was the, the main brains and money behind the fix of the World Series, the so-called Black Sox scandal. Yeah, and well, it's I, I don't mean to divert into there, but I mean, it's just crazy this how uh, maybe past tense, but obvious this 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 character was right. I mean, this, this is a guy who's uh, Rothstein, who's who's, you know, essentially. Looked upon as being almost the uh, the the avatar for people like Lucky Luciano and Frank oh, Costello and Bugsy Siegel and all these. I mean, you know, I mean, sure. it's romanced now, but back in the day, I mean, you you cannot imagine a. I mean, I cannot imagine a character more obviously 
odd to be related to when thinking about getting involved in pro sports or something somewhat above board from <laughs> maybe from what he was or what he was doing stone right i well but, this this is right i mean uh, this was a wide open time and prohibition didn't help i mean rothstein was gambling pre prohibition this is his permanent floating crap game so to speak the that was going on in 1910, 1911, 1912. It was called the Partridge Club, and Stoneham was a member. Well, they also in the in the summers would would go to escape the heat in the city. They would go up to Saratoga Springs, and there would be racing and there's casinos and so on. And Rothstein ran a casino up there in the summertime, and Stoneham was a frequent guest up there. One of the funniest stories, really interesting stories, is. One night that they were at in Rothstein's um, casino, a guy was having quite quite good luck and success, and he he was threatening to you know run the bank into the ground, so to speak. And Rothstein called Stoneham that evening and asked him to bring. Could he send over three hundred thousand dollars to serve sort of a backup cash reserve? And the idea that Stoneham had that kind of money in his summer house is is amazing and sure enough he sends it over well by then the the the, the house had won back much of the the fellow's uh, winnings so it, it didn't he didn't have to use it but another evening a famous story about stoneham and rothstein is stoneham it, being a, a great gambler couldn't get out of the house to go over to the casino so he called rothstein on the phone and asked him what color came up on the on the roulette wheel and stoneham or Rothstein told him what it was, red or black. And he said, well, I bet the opposite. And he said, put $70,000 on the other color. And this is over the phone. So this is the kind of <laughs> the kind of fellow that, that, that he is. And, and the fact that he'd be attracted to uh, someone like Rothstein doesn't, doesn't seem uh, so far-fetched. Well, it's just, it's, it's, it's nuts. So let me ask you this then. Um, did, um, well, the source of the money for buying the Giants franchise, do you think that was wholly coming from Stoneham's business successes or whatever those yeah. were to date? Yes, the, the bulk of it, the bulk of it, certainly. Stoneham grew up, he grew up in a very, we would call it blue collar. He grew up in Jersey City. He was born in Jersey City and he grew up, his father was a, was a, a bookkeeper and his mother was a housekeeper. His mother was born in Dublin, Ireland, and his father was first generation Irish American. And, and Stoneham lived in a parish with all kinds of working people. And when his father died, uh, Stoneham being the oldest son at the age of 17, left high school, didn't even graduate from high school, just headed over, had some Tammany, probably through his father's bookkeeping and so on, knew some Tammany Hall connections being Irish Americans, and managed to get himself a job at a at a at a well-known um brokerage house and he rose quickly as i said before but he had a head for this and he also had what we might call a stomach since we're doing anatomy here he has a stomach for it in the sense that as a gambler he could he knew timing and he he could handle risk so his companies grew he took advantage also of the interest in investing that uh, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but they were astonishing that between 1900 and 1920, 
the growth of the Amer- of the of the people getting involved in investing was huge. It was a growth industry, and Stoneham was perfectly placed to take advantage of this. Plus, he was attracting the small time investor and giving him uh, a chance to uh, invest sometimes uh, on margins, so that they would take out loans with the brokerage houses, Stoneham's brokerage houses. Of course, there would be a a, a severe and stiff uh, um, interest uh, fee attached to these things. So yes, the bulk of his his money was made in the in the in the stock business. Uh, he did do rather well in the horse racing business, uh, but he also was a gambler. So I think if you run all of this together, he managed to um, his his net worth in 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 1920 was over 10 million dollars. If you translate that into today's terms, it's about $158 million that w- would be his, his, his now he, he wouldn't be, you know, an Elon Musk or, or, or a Gates kind of character, uh, certainly, but he was very, very well off in 1920 in, in New York City, and so well off that he could pay a million dollars, which was the, the cost of the Giants franchise in 1919, the highest, uh, um, fee ever paid for an American sports team at that time. All right, what's this? Game time? Fantastic. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the Game Time app. And I will tell you, the GameTime app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning, uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena so about an hour before the game i fired up the game time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket i won't tell you what <laughs> the people around me paid for their ticket but it was certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs and i got to watch the knicks uh, uh in a rare uh moment of uh, uh amazingness uh kick the snot out of the nets uh but that's uh, game time is uh the place uh to get your last minute tickets uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals, flash deals, they call them, uh, and last-minute tickets. Uh, they, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want, sports and entertainment and music, that kind of stuff. The images, the seat views are just perfect. They're great. That's that's always like the, the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there and of course they've got a lowest price guarantee including event cancellation protection so you know you're going to be covered in case as a matter of fact that the game time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price and if you find tickets in the same section uh and row for less game time will credit you 110 percent of the difference uh don't believe me try it for yourself download the game time app now create an account and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the Game Time app. 
And uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at gametime.co. Uh, but get the app, download the app now, create an account, and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. It's Game Time. Thank you, Game Time, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation. It sounds like um, he he took uh, that uh, sort of aggressive approach to business, shall we say, uh, to his sports interests as well. And we're going to talk about the Giants in particular in a second, but I, I do note that he also uh, he tried to hustle up a, a, a professional football team to play at the Polo Grounds. Uh, our soccer fans may remember that uh, uh, back in the day, this the original American Soccer League, back when it was actually almost as popular as baseball, you know, large crowds of, of ethnic fans and, and, and Europe, European uh, expats, et cetera, um, and, and kind of helped uh, – uh, build and then sort of destroy that all at the same time. And and even even um uh obviously his his relationship with the Tammany Hall politics thing. I mean, this is an aggressive cat, right? He's not uh well, he's not he, yeah, violent he, by any means. Yeah, he's a player. And you know the 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 the, the phrase a cutthroat businessman by day and a party man by night. He he loved the nightlife uh, and he often was in uh, a married man with family uh, but also uh, showing up in nightclubs with Broadway, you know, showgirls on his arm kind of thing. Uh, he was a player in that sense. And and this is what attracted me to the, the Gatsby comparison is that 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 sort of fast life that we see in the great Gatsby, the parties, the the, the music, the, the, the flappers, the cars, the yachts, that was all Stoneham's world. And he jumped in and he was a, a jazz age guy. Um, and he knew he was also a student business. So when your point about him being his hands and other things, once he, he got the polo grounds as part of the uh, buying of the club, he had a long lease with the Coogan family uh, to uh, you know have that property. He was in the wintertime uh, trying to get football. As you say, there was college football there, certainly. Um, boxing. He he promoted a lot of boxing, uh, and and as you say, there was soccer. So he was using the polo grounds in a number of ways, and he continued uh, up until about 1924-25. He continued to be involved in horse racing. Now they didn't horse race at the polo grounds, obviously, but he he was uh, his hands. He had his hands in lots of lots of little things. All right. Well, we, we can go really deep on a whole bunch of different things, but I guess I the one thing I want to make sure that we we do discuss though is wh- when it comes to the Giants. Um, this somewhat uh, convoluted, but but pretty uh, important and uh, almost defining, uh, and maybe unbeknownst to certain generations of baseball fans, the the, the 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 battle for New York, so to speak, in terms of baseball and sports generally, I guess at the time, but baseball obviously was the was the the leading uh, sport uh, of its day. Um, the battle between um, uh, the Yankees and the aforementioned Polo Grounds and uh, it's it's clear that there was. Let's put it this way: his approach to business uh, certainly uh, didn't hurt when Ben Johnson, the uh, president of the American League, was uh, a little worried, shall we say, about um, 
about what was going on. Um, uh, and a certain gentleman by the name of Babe Ruth coming in 1920 and the Yankees getting lots of attention. But I, maybe you can elucidate a little bit on that, but I, maybe just as a scene setter, uh, people don't probably realize that the Yankees were a tenant of the Giants in the Polo Grounds at this time, circa 1919, 1920. Yankees didn't even have their own stadium at this point. That's right. And it's a very important part of the story. Uh, you say the battle for New York. I, I go into this in the book in great detail because particularly McGraw, I mean, Stoneham was content when he first bought the team in 1919. He was content to sort of be a wait and see kind of fellow. He, he was a fan more than a, a baseball man. And so he provided the resources for, for McGraw to go out and buy, buy players and trade players and so on. And they did very well. Um, even though Stoneham entered baseball at a very tempestuous time, 1919, 1920, this was by many baseball historians considered the, the really dark ages of baseball when they were threatened with the Black Sox scandal. Stoneham was a very new owner and he weathered that storm. Baseball came back rather strongly in 1920. And one of the reasons for that is New York City, because Babe Ruth arrives, as you say, from Boston, and McGraw is loading up on his talent. And so the Giants and the Yankees, this, they really, in a sense, revive fan interest in baseball in the, in the biggest market in baseball. And there's a rivalry because Ruth is starting to bring in fans and McGraw, it gets under McGraw's skin, particularly, although Stoneham also felt this, that here they are, the Giants are the owners of the Polo Grounds, they're playing their games in the Polo Grounds and the Yankees are tenants and the Yankees are outdrawing the Giants in 1920 and 1921 in their own ballpark. This got under the skin of McGraw and he said to Stoneham, let's get these guys out of here. And he wanted them to wanted Stoneham to throw them out. And Stoneham thought differently and thought better of it and said, well, we can't really, it's not good for public relations, maybe with the other owners. So he gave um, the two owners of the Yankees at the time, Rupert and, and uh, Huston, he gave them a, a, a notice that they would have to, they could stay another 18 months, but they would have to find their own ballpark. And they went across the river and built Yankee Stadium, and it opened in 1923. But in the meanwhile, the Yankees and the Giants are meeting in the World Series. The, the, the first few years of Stoneham's ownership was, was amazing for history. The Giants won four straight National League pennants from 1921 to 1924 uh, and beat the Yankees twice in the World Series. So they were a dominant team uh, in in the history of the of the the Yankees coming into being, the the Giants were were outplaying them, not not outdrawing them because they didn't have a personality like Ruth, but they were outplaying them, and it, it wasn't until the middle of the decade that they fell off, uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. One of them, I think, was Stoneham's legal difficulties. He was getting uh, distracted from baseball, and um, didn't wasn't available always for McGraw and, and, and um, you know, the resources, but he sort of lost a focus there because of his legal difficulties going into court all the time. But the other thing was the rise of the Yankees with Babe Ruth and becoming this, this powerhouse and the Giants sort of sliding a bit. 
So that's a, a really important part of the of the story of, of Stoneham's ownership is that uh, he he inherits this wonderful team under McGraw, and then they dominate in the early part of the decade, and then they sort of fade toward the latter part. They still were leading, they were still a leading force in National League attendance, uh, but they um, they didn't win any more pennants until the 30s. Uh, so they were competitive. They finished second often, sometimes third, but they did draw because of the market. But the, I, the, I'm struggling for a word here. I guess it's collusion. I mean, with, with Ben Johnson was kind of, Ben Johnson is the president of the American League, and he, here's the the dominant franchise in the National League that just so happens to be the uh, the owner of the stadium that the Yankees uh, rent to play in. I mean, if if you go back in the, the story, right, the Yankees, I think once they were given notice, threatened to move to Boston of all places, and I, I mean, it just it just maybe it speaks to the wild and woolly nature of the game. And the times, but I mean, you know, that would never pass muster today. The the head of one of the leagues of Major League Baseball in cahoots, literally, with the owner of one of the more successful franchises in the competing league. Well, that's important. I'm glad you mentioned that because today's MLB has there's no no resemblance to the kind of rivalry. Yeah, it's, that's another story. We'll get to that because sometime. you've got the two leagues really competing with one another and McGraw absolutely disdained the the American League. He he hated uh, uh, Van Johnson. Van Johnson hated him. Uh, they they from the get-go they were they were at, at odds. Van Johnson was a very powerful figure uh, in establishing the American League and maybe uh in the the first two decades of the of the 20th century maybe he was the most powerful uh, figure in baseball uh, in a unique way because he wasn't an owner of any club. He was the he was the president, as you say, of the league. And one of the things that happens with the Black Sox scandal is that they they move for different kind of leadership. Instead of having the the, the, the head of the National League and the head of the American League uh, more or less meeting to decide things, they go for an outside person and they bring in Kennesaw Mountain Landis partly in response to the Black Sox scandal and the idea that they needed clean leadership. Well, Ben Johnson starts to lose his position, his stature, his power. And um, Stoneham, um, there's a story that he, that Ben Johnson came to Stoneham and, and w- wanted to uh, convince him to, to get rid of the, uh, the Yankees as tenants. This is not something that we can actually corroborate, but it's, it's, it's certainly out there. People have commented on it. And uh, Stoneham would have nothing to do with this this um, kind of, um, you call it collusion, it, it, certainly backroom politics, but it was all sort of surrounding the change of, of leadership in the in the in Major League Baseball. And that's another complicated story. But Stoneham was in the middle of that as a very young owner, and he was certainly learning things about the politics of baseball. Okay, I yeah, we can go so long on this, but that's what the book is for. And, and folks, you, you got to get it because this is a really it's a huge and interesting dimension to to this person who was so instrumental in this team's uh, uh, early, uh, not too early, but early uh, uh, life and and times and and set the stage for for what to, what came thereafter with his son and afterwards. But I, I guess the, the general sort of question I would ask is, and maybe the as the 20s continue before the the great depression right 
uh, a lot of his business venture type things uh, uh, draw the attention of, uh, of, of federal officials and and there's a lot of um, uh, indictments and all that kind of stuff. But I guess the question, and maybe this is the hint, um, how does he get away with all this stuff, right? I mean, I mentioned some of the other stuff like with football and and and, and soccer and 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 the the shenanigans, let's call it that, at least uh, with the you know playing, um, you know, holding a, a, a the Yankees hostage at the polo grounds and all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously he's become successful in business and obviously the people he hangs out with are certainly uh, running things uh, at the edges, shall we say? Um, how does he get away with all this stuff? Is he just That's a good, way to, like, good at it? I like your phrase running things at the edges. It's very good. Well, there's a great line in the in the Great Gatsby where you know Jay Gatsby is taking the narrator to lunch, and they meet Meyer Wolfsheim, who is the the stand-in really for Rothstein. He's the the model. Rothstein's a model for this character, who's a shady businessman and a gangster and and, and a gambler and all that. And when, once he uh, he leaves the table, Gatsby turns to the other fellow and says, "You know, he's." He's the guy that fixed the 1919 World Series and the, the narrator of the novel, who's so, you know, his name is Nick Carraway. He's so naive. He says, wow, he fixed the 19. He says, why isn't he in jail? And Gatsby answers, they can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. <laughs> and I, I just took that to be Stoneham completely. He had the resources. He was feisty. He would not be cowed. He would not be intimidated. He hired the best attorneys. And whenever he was indicted, and by the way, he was indicted twice because the, the, the quick story is when he became owner of the Giants, he decided to get completely out of the brokerage business. So he sent letters to all of his clients and said, I'm going to place you with three different brokerage houses. Well, the ones he picked were people like him, but they were not as capitalized. So two of them went belly up almost immediately and left all the clients hanging. So there were all kinds of lawsuits. Did Stoneham know in advance and all this? And of course, he said he didn't. And these these were good companies. And so you can imagine the activity going on in court. And then the, the, the people who were running the, the different brokerage houses, they had their say. And a couple of them said, well, Stoneham was really kind of a second partner to us. And they asked Stoneham about that. And he said, no, I wasn't. So eventually the grand jury decided he's, he, that's, he was lying. So he, he was indicted for perjury. They also indicted him for the other failing uh, organization and mail fraud that he had actually said that this was a solvent co company and it wasn't. But in both cases and many civil suits and so on, he was just tied up for from 1922 to 1927 he was tied up in all these things going on complicated hearing attorneys time money uh, and and he manages to float through it all because he has such resolution and and and, and he's so fixed and he's, he's he's got the wherewithal well that is to say the money but also the wherewithal emotionally and psychologically to, to have his way in court. He, he was often on the stand being grilled by, you know, people and he was, he held his own. So by force of personality and by wealth, hiring very, very good attorneys, he gets through this. He's acquitted from the mail fraud um, and the other, uh, the perjury, 
just languished in, uh, in the courts until a new U.S. attorney came in and said, I'm not taking old cases. I want to concentrate on prohibition. So they basically dismissed everything. So he was lucky in that sense. But partly because he was able to stand up to all this, he got through it. And I, I, that was one thing I really impressed me about him was his resolve and his determination. He also goes back into court to get rid of Frank McQuaid. They have this lawsuit where he orchestrates a, a board meeting where they basically outvote McQuaid off the board and McQuaid sues. And again, Stoneham is back in court, kind of you know, slugging it out, and he managed to prevail again. So uh, he's he's not somebody to take lightly. Uh, he was a, a, a quite a formidable uh, a, a character. But all of this is background to uh, to his ownership of the ball club. I mean, you don't expect this kind of you know activity from you know someone running a ball club. And and sure enough, Stoneham was slugging it out and, and having his. This was the Jazz Age. You know, it was all you know kind of wide open um, stuff. And and he um, he was a, a great jazz age figure. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And obviously, in, in the Giants, you know, they 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 won a couple of titles in in the early part of the uh, of the twenties. So they were in the World Series for a couple of other uh, years in the twenties. They won. The, they they stuck around, and they you know they won again in thirty three. And um, I, I it just it's it, it to me it's truly fascinating that none of this smoke, shall we say. If there wasn't a fire, there was certainly a whole lot of smoke. None of it seemed to affect. Now, again, I've, you've done more of the research than I have, but it seems on its face that it doesn't seem to have affected his uh, his standing in baseball ownership, uh, his running of the team. I mean, to the point where it became a dynastic handoff to his son when he ultimately died in 30, what, 36 yeah, he died. He died a, an agonizing death. He, he he didn't see his 60th year. He died in 59. But he was, you know, he was a hard drinking, hard playing, you know, fast living guy. And, you know, he he burnt his candle at both ends. And uh, and you're, you're right about, you know, him being de de he was determined to live life on his own standard. But to get back to this business of the courts and being tied up, he starts to once this settles, he begins now, you know, we're in, we're into the ownership about 10 years. He starts to become more confident and, and turning his abilities to uh, the club itself. McGraw, meanwhile, is starting to have health problems and, and a monumental change in Giants history occurs in 1932 when Stoneham more or less loses, loses his uh, trust of, of McGraw's abilities the Giants were in last place in 1932 in in late May, and McGraw went to Stoneham and said he didn't he didn't feel good. And McGraw Stoneham asked him, you know, maybe this is a time, to, you know, so to make uh, you know something that's quite complicated. I, I go on in the book at length. I'll, I'll just suffice it to say that Stoneham decides to to switch managers and he brings in Bill Terry, uh, who was a probably the best player on the ball club at the time, making player manager. And what happens under Terry is that the club has a renaissance. They just, it's just a completely different ball club, different style of managing. McGraw was micromanager. He was, he was always calling pitches and 
and telling you when to swing almost even his his was a really real hands-on approach and he he was quite successful in it for a long time but with a new generation of players i think mcgraw was losing his touch certainly stoneham felt this way but terry had a different terry came from the players ranks and he uh his style uh, made a huge difference he brought in a lot of new talent and 1933 they win it all so in one year after terry's takes over the ball club they win the national league pennant and they beat the washington senators in the world series and they're world champs again so stoneham's back on top in in, in the new york city baseball uh, you know sitting on the mountaintop again and enjoying he wouldn't have too too much time to do this because his health was starting to fail him as well and uh but he certainly 1933 and even 1934 where they were in it to the very end they 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 lost out in the last week of the pennant race uh he had those two wonderful uh years uh before he gets in 1935 he gets quite sick and dies that in the winter, December. He's he's dying in December of 1935. So that that was that last hurrah, as I call it in the book, his chance to really enjoy the success of his team again. Well, to close literally and figuratively that chapter, then um, how much involvement does Horace have with the franchise? during this period of time or any time, frankly, during Charles's ownership and oversight uh, of the team? Or was Horace essentially kind of sort of blind and lucky and dumbstruck, if you will, uh, upon his father's passing and his inheritance, if you will, not only of other stuff, but also the, of this team? I, my sense, if I remember correctly, is that 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 Horace had a bit of exposure uh, to the club, but I don't know if he fully understood that he would fully get ownership of the team at, upon his father's passing, or frankly, understanding maybe the timing, like uh, of his uh, of his father's imminent demise. Well, uh, yeah, I think what you've touched on is is uh, all of that is is part of this profile. There's an old myth; it's kind of a romantic story that that uh, Horace Stoneham was 19 years old and he was at the dinner table with his mother and his father came in uh, after dinner was over and came and said, Horry, I bought you a ball club. And this, you know, was the first time that, you know, 1919, but really the, the, the realities behind that are, are quite suspicious in my opinion. Uh, Horace Stoneham at the age of 19 was, a, was kind of a playboy. He, he had, taken advantage of his father's wealth and stature. They lived in Manhattan in hotels. He, he was, uh, he was not, he didn't have a job. He was just, you know, hanging out and, 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 and sowing his wild oats, so to speak. And his father said to him, you know, you're, I don't like the way this is going. And he sent him out to California to work in the copper mines. And for six months, Stoneham was out there, Horace, basically, doing labor and working hard. And then uh, things, apparently, the reports coming back to the father were sufficient enough, and he decided to bring him back. And he said, you're going to work for the ball club now. Well, what that meant was that Horace Stoneham was going to have to learn from the ground up what it's like to be uh, you know, involved with the, with the franchise. His father, being a very tough, tough-minded businessman, had Horace handling ticket sales, groundskeeping, 
he, he was learning about keeping the, the, the stadium clean. Then he would advance a little bit and handle, you know, maybe the equipment managements and so on. And then gradually maybe handling travel. This is all in a period of, you know, four, five, six, seven years. It wasn't until 1932, precisely when McGraw steps down and Stoneham really made, made the decision for, for McGraw to step down, but to bring in Bill Terry. This is when he brings the father, Charles, brings Horace into the front office. And now he's going to be learning, having done all the other things, including travel arrangements for teams and play, finding hotels in other cities. In other words, really a lot of the grunt work behind the, the sort of uh, the game itself, um, handling all the details. He then brought him into the front office and then Horace was introduced to trades, player personnel, uh, the contracts, uh, negotiations. These these are the kind of things that he was learning from Bill Terry. Some of it from McGraw uh, earlier, but mostly it was Bill Terry and his father and 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 all of the people, the secretary of the club, Bill uh, Jim Tierney and 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 the Leo Bondi, the the, the uh, club attorney. These were the things he was involved in. That circle. Now he had a, he had an office in the in in in, in the club. So his training was really uh, severe. He went through everything. And um, at the age of 32, he becomes, his father dies suddenly, really. They, they didn't know that this was going to happen so quickly. But Horace Stoneham, at the age of 32, is, is one of the youngest uh, owners in the history of baseball. He now owns the, the New York Giants. Uh, his father gave him uh, one third. He gave his mother and his sister and Horace. In other words, the, the Stoneham family. Uh, is is uh, you know inheriting the, the Giants and 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 Horace is running the, he's the owner of the club running the club. First thing that happens in 1936 and 1937 they they win the pennants both years and go to the World Series. So this is his entry. Horace Stoneham landed rather softly <laughs> with great success and the 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 games uh, the World Series was a, again a New York scene. It was the Yankees play, playing the Giants. So it, it, it was um, a, a, really a New York story, uh, and, and Horace was right in the middle of it. I find it really curious, though, because that sort of noble apprenticeship model that you kind of outlined there, I mean, this coming from a guy who's hanging around with Arnold Rothstein and, and running numbers and, and, and game, you know, the gambling thing and running hard on, on the edges of business and dodging, you know, subpoenas and, and, and criminal allegations. And I, wow, it's, it's, it, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it, that should be seen as noble uh, inside a, a hard, crusty and, and uh, 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 edgy shell or, or maybe it was a, a, a familial kind of thing, mafioso like in that, you know, it's like part of the family and that's part of the business and the businesses. I don't know. It's, it's a curious well, thing that he did for his son in that regard. Well, I think I think in some ways it's in character. I mean, uh, Stoneham Charles came up the hard way. I mean, he he was a board boy, uh, He you know, and he came from the bottom and and he didn't like the way his his playboy son at 19 looked and he said, you know what, if this kid's going to be uh, an owner of, of a baseball team someday, he's going to have to, to work at it. And uh, I don't know if it's noble either. I mean, I, that's not the word I would use for Charles Stoneham because this guy was such a player. I mean, 
one of the curious things about his personal life is he was a notorious skirt chaser all through his marriage. And by the way, there are really a strange story here. He he was out with showgirls. One of the showgirls he ended up in a relationship with where they were connected, not just as you know, going out at night, but they had a family together. So in the 1930 U.S. Census, if you go and look at it and you look up the New York, uh, you'll see Charles Stoneham in New Jersey City, New Jersey, married to Hannah Stoneham. And then you'll see him, Charles Stoneham, married to Margaret Leonard Stoneham with two children in, in, in Westchester County. So there's a, a, a completely different family in 1930 that, that is involved here. And so he was... Uh, <laughs> Noble, I wouldn't say, but he was certainly, uh, in his own way, uh, a rather caring, I would use the word caring in, in inverted commas, uh, father. He, he saw to it that all of his children, including the children from Margaret Leonard, all were taken care of in his will. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't say he was an affectionate father, I mean, particularly. I mean, he was formidable with Horace and he was distant from his uh, children, but he provided for them, certainly. I could go on and on. This is fascinating stuff. But let me sort of round up all of this with, with I guess, a, a, a signature question. Um, where's the movie of this? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. it sounds like, I mean, just it's fodder for a great period piece. Uh, uh, I, I, I tell you, Tim, it's just so interesting to me that what I tried to do is, you know, when I decided to, to jump into this project, and by the way, it's it six years of research and, and, and working, I, I only got so far with digging into Charles because this was a guy who lived so mysteriously, never wanted his picture taken, never watched most of the games from the polo grounds from an office out in center field. Writers say you could go to the ballpark day after day, year after year, and never see a man called Charles Stoneham. He, he, he was a mysterious guy. He did much of what he could to cover his tracks. He was frequently in the newspaper scandals. There were a couple of women to, uh, who committed suicide, who left notes to him. And he said, of course, I, I didn't know anything. I don't know who these women are. This, this is complete, you know. He, he was denying, denying, and so on. And, and yet, as a biographer, you say, well, what, how do I do this? And I decided to situate him within the age he lived and let the age, the jazz age, with all its complexity and all of its strange energy and, and you know, keep in mind that anybody who went at night to decide to go out to dinner in a nightclub was breaking the law. There's an awful lot of law breaking going on, bootlegging, the rise of the of the, of the criminal and all in 1920s. So his, 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 his age defines him. He also defines the age. And it was, it was, that's the reason I brought in the Gatsby material is it helped me see a man as, as someone of an age, as, as a way of not only letting the age kind of define him, but him defining the age. And that's allowed me insight into the, into his character. Yeah. And look, I, I would recommend this book to anybody, not just for a baseball sort of slice here in the history of the New York Giants, which which is, is definitely an important part of it. And frankly, a, a relatively unexplored sort of backstory, if you will, to it all uh, foreground too. But but also, yeah, as a great slice of uh, what was going on during the Roaring Twenties, 
and such, and, and putting that all in context, right? And, and and if I'm if I'm sitting in Hollywood looking for story ideas, right? I mean, I could play it both ways. Uh, I could angle it on one or the other and still come up with a great great story because this is this is a, a character that. Um, well, as we're recording this, maybe timely as today's headlines. I mean, uh, it's a certain individual that's getting uh, uh, indicted today as we record this that, uh, you know, uh, it sounds uh, it rhymes a lot with uh, a bunch of what you've just outlined in this uh, with this guy's thing 100 years ago. Well, 100 years ago, there are some incredible parallels. You know, the the energy of the Jazz Age was spurred, many people say, by the horrors of the trenches of World War One. That's true, certainly, but there was something else that went on too, a worldwide pandemic. And that was also horrible. More Americans died of the Spanish flu in 1919 and 20, in 18 and 19 than they did in the trenches. But it was those two events that caused Americans, young Americans particularly, to want to turn their back on suffering and embrace the sort of live for the moment uh, philosophy of the 1920s. So yeah, and that that was something as I was writing this book about the effects of a pandemic a hundred years ago, I was in one, you know, <laughs> sheltering in place in, in my home in Whidbey Island, you know, thinking, wow, history definitely repeats itself. Uh, well, I wish you nothing but the best with this book. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a fun read. It's a great read. It's very well researched for sure. Uh, and I, I learned a ton about sort of the, it just opened my eyes up to a whole, whole bunch of things. And I, I'm, I'm just surprised it hasn't been, um, you know, uh, thoroughly uh, uh, brought to light before. And like I said, I think it's there's a great, you know, there's a great story um, uh, there for the taking if somebody wants to romanticize it a little bit, um, uh, well, in I, my I, opinion. I, yeah, let me let me ask you this. Where, if anything, does the San Francisco Giants uh, franchise, have you had any interaction with anybody there? Uh, do, does baseball care about this? Because clearly it shines not only a light, but maybe, maybe some... Some shade, shall we say, to uh, to the, the latest. Yeah, uh, um, I, I certainly the Giants were extremely helpful with home team, but you could see that 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 there was a a, a direct connection with you know the fact that it was the San Francisco Giants I was writing about. Uh, but the Stoneham family, of course, is essential to the idea of them being in San Francisco. I mean, without the Stoneham family, they wouldn't be there. So um, I think that uh, they helped me in this sense that I there is a. a under Peter McGowan's ownership and, and that, that ownership that took off after Bob Lurie in 1992-93, they, Peter particularly because he grew up in New York City, he wanted to honor the history of the franchise. And so there was a lot of effort to kind of remember the Giants. And if you go to the ballpark in San Francisco today, you'll see on the outside wall and right field, you'll see all the New York statistics and records and names and so on deliberately uh you know echoing uh that this was a franchise with a history so i i the archives in san in san francisco i work with missy mikalicki who's the uh, archivist of the giants uh she's been extremely helpful uh they do have files on mcgraw on stoneham and so on not much but enough and they're certainly interested in the history and and missy is uh you know, contacting me about, you know, materials and so on. So I'd say probably the average fan going to a ball game today in San Francisco is not too aware as you started out your uh, your podcast today. But I think um, for those people that are interested in baseball history, I think this is the Stoneham story is, is pretty essential 
to the identity of the New York, of the San Francisco Giants. I uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, um, I it's also actually kind of heartening because we've heard plenty of stories of uh, teams and leagues and situations uh, uh, not embracing or not choosing to remember or conveniently blind spotting uh, things, either just because they used to be in another city and they want to whitewash that going forward uh, to other things that maybe were something that during the period of time was not something that they want to remember or embrace or acknowledge uh, for whatever reasons and stuff. So it's actually kind of heartening to hear that the Giants organization, and maybe because it's been a hundred years, right? Those things become history, right? And and they're they're less, um, I don't know, they become more uh, curiosities and uh, um, uh, intrigue versus uh, maybe potentially detrimental, right? But um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, it's a very interesting plank of the story that I I didn't know about. Well, I, I I thank you for your, you know your interest. It's uh, it's heartening. You know, a biography or a historian. I'm sort of a combination, I guess, biography and biographer and historian. Uh, you know, that's to me that, that that's certainly interesting. So thanks thanks for that recognition. Uh, anything else you have planned uh, now that this book is uh, is out and you're hopefully going to promote it and stuff and hopefully. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, have any other? Or is there more to this story? Or do you have any other interests in and around sports too? I got, I got a, I, last night. I got I got a question on, on another Zoom presentation about what about the 1917 Giants? And I hadn't thought about this, but they were talking about how that World Series. There's a rumor that that World Series was fixed. Well, it turned out that that was the World Series that the Giants were in with McGraw's team. So I thought, well, I'd, I I hadn't done a lot of work on this, but I I definitely knew about the the rumors. So uh, who knows? Right now, I'm 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 so preoccupied with, you know, getting the the, the word out on on uh, Jazz A's Giant that I I'm kind of sitting sitting still, if you will, uh, for the moment. But I continue to read and think about things. So maybe there'll be another project down the road. Well, you could also take the um, the Robert Caro approach and just have multiple volumes, right? Every couple of years. Right? So, I mean, look, I look at the football and the soccer uh, 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 parts of this story, which obviously was not the focus of this work. Um, you know, it, it could actually be very important uh, historical uh, unearthing of, of, of things. Cause I think a lot of people think that uh, pro football started, you know, in the twenties and, and, Kind of did, but you yeah. know, back in 1919, Stoneham was involved trying to bring a pro team there uh, as well. Prior to that, same with soccer, and a lot of people think soccer began and pro soccer began in this country in 1967 after the uh, 1966 World Cup. And we've learned on many occasions that it goes way, way, way back to the earliest days of emigration in the United States. So, oh yeah, no, Stoneham was definitely involved in soccer in the in the in the 20s and. Uh... I don't put that in the book just because it, it it took me away from my focus. But yeah, he um, he as you say, he had a, he had a hand in that too. Well, now interestingness for sure. Uh, the book must get, must read, must enjoy is called Jazz Age Giant. Charles A. Stoneham and New York City baseball in the Roaring Twenties. It is out now. It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. And Rob Garrett is the author, uh, as you just heard. Uh, get multiple copies. Send them out to your friends. 
Uh, you can get it wherever good books are found. Uh, you can get it in Kindle or hardcover versions, of course. Uh, and of course, if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you will find a convenient link once you search up episode number 299 on our website. Uh, if you're uh, listening to this around when we're dropping this episode, uh, it should be there right there front and center. If you're listening to this uh, weeks or months uh, down the road, just do a little search and you'll find in that little search box. It's a pretty, pretty uh, powerful little box. Uh, just number 299. Uh, with Rob Garrett, this discussion, you'll find a convenient link to Amazon. And again, we get some uh, referral love when you do that. And we appreciate that tremendously. Uh, what uh, else can I tell you? You should also, uh, while you're considering that book purchase, um, perhaps even uh, listening to another episode that we did back in uh, April of uh, 2021, about two years back, uh, with our pal Steve Trader. Uh, that was uh, episode number 212, where we talk about um, Charles uh, Stoneham's son, Horace, who inherited the team, the New York Giants, the New York baseball Giants. Uh, and uh, Steve's book uh, is also worth a read and a click through to buy. Uh, just search up that episode number 212. And that's called 40 Years a Giant, The Life of Horace Stoneham. So the twin books, frankly, uh, if you want to get a good uh, lens on the, let's call it the beginnings of the modern day version of the New York baseball giants from what, 1919, when Charles bought the team all the way to their, uh, 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 exit velocity, shall we say from, uh, from New York and the, uh, the dilapidating polo grounds to, uh, the greener pastures of San Francisco. Uh, those are the two books, uh, that would uh, accompany your journey into learning about that story and uh, they're both worth your time and then some uh hopefully uh more episodes for you to enjoy when you go to goodseatsstillavailable.com we post them all there conveniently but the best way of course is to subscribe or follow or do whatever it is uh, to mainline your feeds uh audio wise to get our uh, our podcast episodes we try to publish every uh monday morning very early uh u.s uh, central time uh usually with uh with uh, without interruption, occasionally a couple of extra special uh, episodes and stuff. So the best way to keep uh, on top of our little uh, our little show, our little universe, is to make sure that you do that, so you get every single episode. What else? How about our website again? GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You of course can send us email at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, and you can also follow us on social media. You'll find us on uh, Instagram at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. There's a little page devoted to us on Facebook also uh, referred to as Good Seats Still Available, and on the Twitter, uh, instable or unstable or whatever stable it is, uh, now I see Dogecoin logos every time I sign on to Twitter, so who knows what the hell's going on there. But uh, as long as uh, we can uh, still do it for uh, free, <laughs> we'll be there, I guess, uh, for the time being on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, thank you to our pal Jerry Payne, uh, the uh, chief cook and bottle washer of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, sir, of course, as always, for your twiddling of knobs. And uh, thank you, kind listener, too. We'll uh, see you next week. More fun and frivolity awaits. Stay tuned. Until then, take care, and uh, we love you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.